just a few bars of music, and we're instantly transported to the magical world of Harry Potter. Kids and adults around the world have been falling in love with J.K. Rowling's books and movies for more than two decades. But the books have a lot more to offer than just fun. So we'll talk about issues such as othering, race, gender criticism, romanticism. Uh, We'll talk about crime and punishment, censorship. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Later in the show, medievalist scholars want you to know Game of Thrones is not set in the Middle Ages. They're dragons. But that doesn't mean it can't help us take a closer look at what the Middle Ages were actually like. Um, By the end of the Middle Ages, uh, Europeans are trading in China, right? They're interacting with the Mongols. They've been to North Africa. So the idea that this is is an exclusively white place um, is just absolutely, absolutely false. But first, we have an interview. For every adult who's ever felt a bit embarrassed about their love of Harry Potter, Alicia DeFonso teaches English at Old Dominion University, and almost every semester she explores some of the biggest questions in great literature through Harry and his friends. Alicia, tell me about your Muggles Abroad course. Where do you go that excites the student Harry Potter fans? Oh, I teach this class at Old Dominion University called the Hogwarts Experience, and we study Harry Potter for a couple weeks, and then we take a trip to London, and we do everything from the Harry Potter studio tour to platform nine and three quarters, Uh, but I also create like Horcrux clues, and we search throughout London um, for, for all of these kind of hints and clues in the novels. The, the, the pinnacle, I should say, of our trip is the Harry Potter Studio Tour because it's all of the original set work from the films. So the costumes, uh, the sets, the scripts, the drawings, everything you can think of. And they even have the life-size model of the castle, the Hogwarts castle. And so that's kind of like at the end and that's where everyone cries because they're playing the music and then you see, you know, the castle and it, and everything about that tour is just really emotional. You know, going to Ollivander's wand shop, Dumbledore's office, Snape's classroom. Isn't it interesting that you say they're emotional on this tour? You know, you go to a Disney site and you don't expect people to be emotional, but these kids are. Yeah, I I think it's because Harry Potter and the series itself is so relatable and whether you identify with Harry Potter or not you find a character and you see them through for many years and it it gives you something you know that that maybe you haven't felt before and you know the sense of magic of course and wonder is is always there it's the child within I, I think the emotion the connection that students have has well, obviously, it's been going on for a while, but it will go on for decades to come. I think it's this story is timeless. Do you take grown-ups on this tour by any chance? <laughs> Everybody always asks me yeah. that. Can you take me? Can you take me? Even fellow professors want me to take them. And I say, sorry, this is strictly undergraduate students coming. But no, I mean, I, I, I love how adults get into it because my greatest pet peeve about teaching Harry Potter and this isn't for me it's for other people they think that it's you know kind of 
lowbrow in terms of art and the humanities. Oh, it's Harry Potter because it's popular, right? That it must not have a lot of rigor in terms of artistry in a way. It's not a kid's book. This is a book for anyone. What are some of the academically rigorous themes that you explore with your students that come from the novels? We go through a variety of literary theory and topics that one might come across in an upper-level literature class, because that's what it is. Um, So we'll talk about issues such as othering, um, race, gender criticism, and we'll also discuss uh, romanticism and the you know this kind of romantics had a fervor for nature and we'll see how that's present uh, we'll talk about crime and punishment censorship you know all of these these areas that and themes that the novels discuss for example consider the difference between prejudice and racism first of all but how are the characters of pure blood mixed bloods regarded and by whom How does this attitude compare with real prejudices and historical examples and explanations? So we kind of discuss race itself and othering, for example, in the series, but then we'll also relate it to historical examples. What was Rowling drawing from when she put this in in the series? What was she drawing from? Well, there's definitely a theme of World War II and... Nazis in the in the text. There's no doubt that that's that that's present. There's an ethnic cleansing vibe with Voldemort and pure bloods only believing that pure bloods are the best. But there's other themes as well in regards to race. There's a hierarchy where you have giants, you have centaurs, you have house elves, yeah. and based on your race, you know that decides how much power you have. What are some of the most exciting outcomes that your students have created as a result of this course over the years? One of my favorite presentations discussed romanticism in nature, comparing it to some of the romantic writers, for example, like William Wordsworth and The World is Too Much With Us, talking about man's disconnection to nature, how man consumes right, goods and in that regard, we've forgotten nature, right? Instead, we want to produce, we want to make, but when we do, we also destroy nature. There's definitely this sense of power over nature, its lands, its creatures, and we should consider, right, man's connection, or I should say disconnection, to the natural world in the series. Many people read Harry Potter, and they think that they are you know, kind of adoring animals like the dragons, like the unicorns, right? That there's these fantastical beasts. But those that have read the series thoroughly know very well that the dragons are shipped off to a separate land, that they're kept to be controlled. Unicorns are used for their blood, for their hair. So there's there's always this kind of sense of hierarchy in the magical world and oppression. It's amazing how much this whole generation has been influenced by Harry Potter as a moral compass. It's their shared morality and their shared way of seeing what their role is in the world, and it sort of incites them to stand up for good. I believe so. I mean, because even though our protagonist, Harry, 
struggles himself sometimes to find his way. I mean, he's the hero, but he's the flawed hero. He can become vain. He can become selfish. Right? He can become an egotistical. But he works through that. It's also a coming-of-age novel, right? And so we were all like that at one point in our lives. Most of us were, anyway. Yeah. So f- for for now, when when we have this age of everyone reading Harry Potter, the millennials especially, I think we can start to see its profound effect on, you know, our culture. Of course, you know, we, we all know that Harry Potter is still popular in films and now on Broadway, but to take it to a political level even, one might, one might say, you, you could. You could even see uh, Dumbledore's army present in the March for Our Live kids. Did you think about that? Oh, absolutely. It was one of the first things I thought of when I saw, you know, those kids speaking out for what they believe is right, you know, starting a revolution in a way, you know, against what they feel are dark forces. And and they're doing something that their elders, that the people that are the leaders in this country will not. And that's exactly what happens in the Harry Potter series. Uh, their teachers are helpless. There's politicians in the series that are held down um, and, and consumed by the vote. And so these students must rise up and they do so in the novel and they do so in real life now with the March for Our Lives. So I think that there's definitely some influence there. So many students clamor to take this course. You have to sort of sort them. How do you let them know they got in? Well, the first year we had such an overwhelming response because this was the first time that the class was taught. It's one of, I believe, a dozen throughout the country and one of a few that actually do the study abroad attached to it. So we had about 50 applications within a month. So what I did was I actually created a question and they had to write a short essay along with that. And from the essay, I kind of decided who the 14 were that would come aboard. And I didn't announce it to anyone. Instead, what I did was I had my friend who was a calligrapher um, help me, and we created letters of acceptance from the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And we we got the wax seal. Everything was, like, to the T. I even looked for owl stamps. I could not find an owl stamp anywhere. I was looking for that. And then they got it in the mail right around Christmas time. And so many of the students that were accepted into the program were like, I still have my letter. I cried when I got my letter. So, you know, (laughs) I I try to recreate the experience as much as I can because I know that even the child inside me wants that, wants that to happen so much. I understand you recently lost your grandfather, and I'm so sorry about that. Oh, thank you. I know that you had planned on taking students on a trip to Europe to follow in his footsteps from World War II. Yes, one of my ideas for a future study abroad class is to offer a World War II experience and you know, kind of like a cultural and historical study of World War II and kind of rediscover it, the event itself, because it is so monumentous and I, I believe that my generation and, and maybe some of the future generations are, are so far removed from it that they don't know much about it. And, and that's actually what I found in myself when I started writing about World War II and my grandfather's experience. But I'm hoping to kind of turn that into something where perhaps we visit all of the major battle sites 
for example, the Normandy beaches, Battle of the Bulge, the Bridget Remagen, right? My grandfather also liberated concentration camps. So, you know, I, I would love to take a tour and just like I do with Harry Potter, make it come alive, right? Make history come off the page, see that this is a real place and kind of also see that, you know, what America did here and, and what our allies did here changed the face of the world, really. And, and, and I think that students, some students might, might gravitate towards that. I mean, I hope that they would. But I'd like to add that personal touch with my grandfather because a lot of my writing is about my grandfather's experience during World War II as an Army combat engineer. Sounds wonderful. Alicia DeFonzo, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me and with good reason. Thank you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. Alicia DeFonzo teaches English at Old Dominion University. Coming up next, the women of Westeros. The eighth and final season of HBO's Game of Thrones is scheduled to premiere April 14th. Game of Thrones is arguably the most popular show on TV, and viewership for the series has reached 16 and a half million. If you're one of those who can't wait for the start of the final series, we've got your Game of Thrones fix. Matthew Gabriel is an historian at Virginia Tech. He uses Game of Thrones to explore gender and power during medieval times. Matthew, there are several powerful cultural themes that you like to bring out. One is about women in the show and power. Mm-hmm. What are some of the others? Um, the other is kind of a more general theme about, like, well, what are the elements of this that make us think it sets in the Middle Ages? And that can be, um, you know, the castles, the visuals. And then the other big theme that I always do is the fantasy element, is dragons, is why do we always think that dragons are set in the Middle Ages? Why do we think that there are monsters there? Um, and I think it has a lot to do with... Um, Our perception of the period, which is still in kind of common uh, speech, is calling it the Dark Ages, right? This is an era of superstition. People there didn't know anything. Um, It's the the world of the church and religion and and, um, darkness and the stop, uh, the end of learning for after the ancient world. And so it just makes sense that these kind of superstitious, these magical beings would dwell there with a population that just didn't know any better, didn't know science. What can we learn about the role of women from this show? What sorts of issues are really brought out? Sure. I think that this is one of the the kind of bigger themes within the show as a whole through its entire run um, is the way that women's roles change over the course of the season. And you start to see them really kind of coming into their own in the most recent season that that just aired um, from people who who were never able to make uh, decisions really on their own to ones who who were kind of primed to take over um, the world of Westeros, right? Um, from Daenerys Targaryen to Cersei Lannister, um, Sansa and Arya Stark and, um, and people like that, um, Brienne of Tarth, other major figures, is that they become the major movers of, um, uh, of the show, you know, the, the drivers of the plot, the people who are willing to make difficult decisions, who are willing to make kind of ethical decisions. Um, ones that men, for whatever reason, over the past few seasons have, have kind of failed at kind of spectacularly in many cases. So in the first season, women are in very different roles. They're prominent, but they're weaker. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you see that, for example, in, in this, one, uh, this one great scene with uh, Catelyn Stark, who's um, Catelyn is, is kind of the, the wife of one of the main characters, Ned Stark, um, a very important figure in her own right. 
But during the course of the season, and I should say spoiler alert, right, her son is almost murdered and she is out for justice. She winds up at this inn and confronts the person, um, Tyrion Lannister, who she thinks has committed the murder. It turns out he hasn't, but she thinks he has. And in that scene, um, she manages to mobilize these, these, these strangers, really, by um, calling to mind or kind of um, showing these invisible lines of power that she has based upon her familial connections, both her father's and her husband. You, sir. Is that the black bat of Harrenhal I see embroidered on your coat? It is, my lady. And is Lady Went a true and honest friend to my father, Lord Hoster Tully of Riverrun? She is. The Red Stallion was always a welcome sight at Riverrun. My father counts Jonas Bracken amongst his oldest and most loyal bannermen. Our Lord is honored by his trust. I envy your father all his fine friends, Lady Stark, but I don't quite see the purpose of this. I know your sigil as well. The Twin Towers of Frey. How fares your lord, sir? Lord Waldo is well, my lady. He has asked your father for the honor of his presence on his 90th name day. He plans to take another wife. Ah. This man came into my house as a guest and there conspired to murder my son, a boy of 10. In the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. She's so calm in that scene, calling on these invisible networks. She can't command them. She can't just tell someone to do something. She relies upon her father's, um, her father's power and her husband's power in order to mobilize those men. In, um, in kind of direct contrast to that, there's another really interesting um, scene from early on in the show in which uh, Cersei Lannister, who's another really powerful woman, um, she was married to the king at the very beginning of the show, um, but when the king dies, she's still the, the, she becomes the, uh, the mother of the current king. Um, she's the daughter of one of the most powerful lords in the land, kind of separate from that. She sits on the king's council kind of as one of his closest advisors and stuff like that, and yet despite all of those kind of positions, her dad decides she's going to marry to benefit the family. She has no say whatsoever. She protests. She, she directly protests and tries to, to claim um, you know, the, that authority. And her dad just shuts her down. And there's nothing absolutely that she can do. Tyrion will do as he's bid, <laughs> as will you. <clears throat> what do you mean? May all marry Sir Loras. I will not. The boy is heir to High Garden. Tyrion will secure the North. You will secure the Reach. No, I won't do it. Yes, you will. You're still fertile. You need to marry again and breed. I am Queen Regent, not some broodmare. You're my daughter! You will do as I command, and you will marry Loras Tyrell. And put an end to the disgusting rumors about you, once and for all. Father, don't make me do it again, please. Not another word. That's such an amazing scene for a lot of different ways It's because you see kind of the power dynamics of the family, right, which, which you, you know, you kind of learn about over the course of, um, of the series. But especially there is that um, 
the situation turns out almost exactly the opposite of Caitlin. And it really shows, especially with women, especially early on in the show, how their power is really situational. And what I mean by that is simply that it depends on the context in which they can operate power. Cersei thinks she's powerful for a certain reason because of her role, and she's absolutely not. She's powerful because she's able to operate in a certain way. That's something that Catelyn understands in that first clip that Cersei absolutely doesn't, and, and it really shows in that second clip. Were women really powerful during the Middle Ages in any way? <laughs> well, that is a very complicated question, <laughs> but a really great one. Um, the, the short answer is yes. Um, the, the longer answer is, of course, it's complicated. Um, you know, you have, just like we talked about with Cersei and with uh, Catelyn, for example, is that you have women who, depending on the context, could be immensely powerful um, and who could be immensely weak that, you know, the, the power that they thought they wielded would evaporate in a moment. Um, so, for example, you know, you have queens who rule in their own rights. Um, a woman by the name of Matilda of Tuscany, who lived in the late 11th century, she became kind of the power broker between the papacy and the empire at the end of the 11th century, in which both emperor and pope needed her support, would go to her for um, for favors and for um, for her military, um, for her army's military support in the wars between them. Um, and then you have um, women like... Um, Queen Judith, who is the wife of uh, Louis the Pious, um, she was immensely powerful kind of because of the position she had, but ended up causing a revolt that caused many, uh, the loss of many lives and almost the fall of the empire. Do you think with Arya, who has the fantasy of wanting to be a knight, and we see this all the time in the genre, mm -hmm. is that, do you think, based on reality, or at least based on literature from the era, were the writers of the book and the TV series going back to something they'd found? There is one kind of shining example which kind of, um, which, which comes through, and that's simply Joan of Arc. Um, you know, Joan of Arc, towards the end of the Middle Ages, during the Hundred Years' War for the French, um, led the French army in a, in a rebellion against the English who had invaded, and, um, you know, almost single-handedly because of her, um, her power and her abilities as a, as a, literally as a warrior and as a military commander, turned the tide for the French. Um, you know, and for that, she was tried as a heretic and burned by the English when she was captured. You know, so many scenes in Game of Thrones are violent, and a lot of the violence, not all of it, is perpetuated on the female characters. Mm -hmm. They are abused. They're assaulted. They're forced Absolutely. to do what the men tell them to do. Did that change as the seasons went by? Do you think the plot writers began to become more woke? <laughs> um, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I... I think the violence against women is, that you see in the show, I think it's gone down a little bit over the course of the season and that there has been a lot of, um, you know, popular commentary. And I think really part of that is coming from historians who were saying, you know, the Middle Ages were indeed a super violent time. You know, you're kind of evoking this as a time that's other. Um, but, you know, it's not it's not universally that way. It's not that there was a there was senseless, needless violence that occurred uh, against everyone all the time in this period. Um, but I also think it fits there, the, the kind of narrative arc that the show is trying to get across, which is that women are really kind of coming into their own and becoming rulers in their own right. The series also gets a lot of criticism for the way it handles race. It mm. is primarily a very white cast. Does that have any historical grounding? 
Uh, no, absolutely not. So, and I think that that gets at that's a really interesting discussion to have because it really gets at kind of our expectations about the Middle Ages much more than the actual Middle Ages themselves. When we talk about the Middle Ages, a we're talking about kind of an entire continent, and we're talking about like a thousand plus years of history. Um, and we're talking about, um, you know, not just Europe as a continent, but its interactions across the entire Mediterranean world. Um, by the end of the Middle Ages, uh, Europeans are trading in China, right? They're interacting with the Mongols. They've been to North Africa. They've rounded, um, you know, they've gone into sub-Saharan Africa. Um, by the very end of the Middle Ages, we're, we're talking about the encounter with the New World. So the idea that this is, a, this is an exclusively white place um, you know, is, is just absolutely, absolutely false. Um, you know, there's archaeological evidence, which has been coming to light for the last 20 to 30 years about Africans living in Britain, for example, as early as the 8th or 9th century, and maybe even before, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the reality of the Middle Ages is, is much more diverse than what Game of Thrones is betraying. But, you know, when we talk about the Middle Ages, and, and a lot of this actually has to do with J.R.R. Tolkien, who had some really kind of problematic views about race, about this kind of really lily-white uh, European-only civilization which had no contact with the outside world. And that's, that's just simply not true. One of the plot lines is that the mother of dragons rescues people who had been enslaved, and these are people mm. of color, who take on powerful roles as mm -hmm. we go along, but is even that insufficient as far as representing people of color from this era? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the line of criticism, and I think a really important one is that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's always the people of color who are rescued. They're never the ones who have agency on their own. So you have this, this very, you know, white woman, um, Daenerys Targaryen. I mean, she, she's, you know, kind of stereotypically very pale-skinned, even though she lives in kind of a, the desert basically for a while. Um, you know, very blonde hair, and then everyone she rescues is is of darker skin. Um, and I think, again, that, that kind of plays on um, this kind of colonialist 19th century um, fantasy about kind of what Europe and what the Middle Ages were like, is that slavery exists over there. Um, whereas there's there's lots of evidence. I mean, slavery existed was was kind of the foundation of the Roman economy, you know, in, in, in antiquity in the re, in uh, Europe in real life, and then continued throughout the Middle Ages. I mean, there's several great new books which talk about kind of the slave trade in Europe, um, um, not just importing kind of uh, Middle Easterners or um, uh, Muslims, but also um, from Eastern Europe and other whites and selling them across Europe and just being a common occurrence. Who are your favorite characters? <laughs> I don't like any of them, honestly. <laughs> so they all, um, you know, they're all kind of terrible in their own ways. And I think that's, I think that's intentional. I mean, it's one of the things that I think makes Game of Thrones very popular is that these, these, these people, despite kind of their outrageous acts, they're relatable, right? Like they do good things and they do bad things. And, and it depends on the context. And you can always kind of sympathize with them and hate them at, um, you know, at the moment kind of depending. Um, you know, the, the Starks, for example, the family of the Starks, um, who are kind of the centerpiece of the story and certainly are, are kind of wronged at the very beginning and start this whole um, this whole civil war, which kind of runs through the entire series. You know, they're not blameless in any of this. I mean, they make really bad decisions and they do pretty awful things sometimes, you know, and just like the Lannisters, who are kind of the arch villains at the very beginning, you know, they become sympathetic at times. Certainly individuals of them do. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I mean, it, it makes me kind of hate them all. <laughs> so, Well, Matthew, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me today on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Matthew Gabriel is an historian at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Oscar Michelle was one of the pioneers of African-American film. In the early half of the 20th century, he produced more than 44 movies and was the very first African-American to direct a talkie. His movies took on major themes facing the African-American community, His 1938 film, God's Stepchildren, ends with a light-skinned black woman who decides she's going to pass as a white woman. I'm running away, Mother. I've left Clyde. You know I never loved a man, and I can stand it no longer. I've left him, and I'm leaving the Negro race. Oh, don't look at me like that. I've tried. Heaven knows I have. But I can't stand it any longer. My mind is made up, and I'm through. Andy's not subtle about his own moral and political agenda. You won't succeed on this fool's errand, Naomi. But I see your mind is made up. So I won't try to stop you. I tried so hard to save you from this. I did the best I could. But I failed. Now I can only say I'm sorry for you, Naomi. Sorry from the bottom of my heart. And I pray the Lord to try to forgive you and guide you on to God knows where. Movies like God's Stepchildren were part of an early indie film scene that grew out of the barriers African Americans faced in Hollywood. Elroy Boyd studies this era of black film. He's a professor of speech and theater at Virginia State University and an adjunct professor of mass communications at Virginia Commonwealth University. Roy, when were the first indie films made, and how did they come about? These were called race movies? Yes. They featured an African-American cast and produced and written and distributed by African-Americans. So there was a need from the get-go to present African-Americans and African-American life in America in an uplifting, dignified manner, that of which was extremely rare. Had this been triggered by that racist movie, Birth of a Nation? Absolutely. Because of how African-Americans were portrayed in that movie as lazy, oversexed, gluttonous, and corrupt and politically irreverent, there was definitely a move Let's go and let's put positive images of ourselves and have them all over America. That was 1915, roughly 1918. There was a gentleman in Omaha, Nebraska. His name was Noble Johnson, and he founded the Lincoln Motion Picture Company, named after the great emancipator. And Noble Johnson was an actor from the Hollywood system, and he took that experience and put it into the films that he produced. These films had a professional look to them, and they were the very first films that had serious, dramatic story with good actors in performance. His mission was to up 
outlived the Negro race. His very first film was called The Realization of a Negro's Ambition. Even in the title, that right there will tell you what his mission was. And it got rave reviews. There was also Luther Rollins of the Ebony Film Corporation. He was a pioneer in that he created comedy shorts. He believed that I am going to make comedy films, I'm going to make short comedy films, but these African Americans in these films, they will not be stealing chickens. They will not be shooting craps. I can make good comedy apart from all of that. And of course, Ebony films did not last very long because black audience still felt that his films were perpetuating negative stereotypes. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. And I also see a lot of parallels with what we have going on today. You know, a lot of people are uneasy with the work of Tyler Perry and feel that there must be more of an intellectual stimulation and the extrapolation of the African-American people than such. And I really wonder, with the success of Black Panther, what Noble Johnson would have thought for being the first African-American filmmaker to produce an all-black cast and an all-black crew of a serious dramatic motion picture in the same way uh, that Black Panther is. Yeah. So one argument that is made is really the independent film industry, which we hear so much about, was begun by black filmmakers during the Jim Crow era. Absolutely. There had to be some kind of empowerment because of of the desolation that was going on all around you. Now, not only because of what was happening politically, the Black Codes and the Jim Crow, there was also the time we were experiencing what is called the Great Migration, where a lot of African Americans were leaving the South to go up North. You know, from 1892 up until 1968, there were 3,944 lynchings in this country. In the year of 1900 alone, there were 100 lynchings in this country. So there had to be an exodus. So you go up North. And when you go up North, there is the need for affirmation because with migration, there is a sense of dislocation. So you need affirmation. You need race art. You need race movies. You need race records. You need soul food. We have to find the group again. There is a burgeoning middle class of African-Americans. So this group of people wanted to see images of themselves. Where were the studios? What parts of the country? And what developed this sort of ground zero for making these films? The studios were all over the nation. Uh, there were studios in Los Angeles. There were studios in New York City, Jacksonville, Florida, Omaha, Nebraska, uh, Chicago. Chicago was sort of the hub And a lot of them were produced in Fort Lee, New Jersey, because the directors at that time, especially Oscar Michaud, he would get a lot of the black actors who were performing in New York City. And he would work around their schedules. So Fort Lee was very close to the city. He could get these black Broadway actors, bring them into the studio and get those quality performances out of them. Tell me about Oscar Michaud, and why is he such an instrumental figure in the history of black film? He wrote books, and he sold them door to door. Lincoln Motion Picture Company contacted him 
to take his novel, The Homesteader, and make it into a movie. He insisted that he was going to direct. Well, that fell through with Lincoln Motion Picture Company. However, within a few months, he got actors from Chicago, he got a crew from Chicago, and he put up The Homesteader in 1918. It was released in 1919. And then from there, he became the leader of the industry and he produced a little more than 43 films. And they always had a social message. And he was obsessed with an issue. He was obsessed with uh, interracial romance a lot of his films tended to deal with interracial romance and he was obsessed with colorism the conflict within the african-american race between those who are dark-skinned and between those who are light-skinned he wanted to go into the psyche of the issue or the psyche of the african-american it was viewed then as a the great taboo and b what all African-Americans were curious about or wanted to do but couldn't do it. If I can talk about a scene in the film Within Our Gates, if you don't mind. Within Our Gates was filmed in 1919, and it was the answer to Birth of a Nation, in which there was a sharecropper farmer who wanted to get his part of the profits from the white landowner. And they argued in the office, and another disgruntled farmer shot the landowner. Well, the farmer, who was black, was very scared, of course, did not kill him. Of course, we know it was another white farmer that killed him, so he ran. Well, white lynch mob forms thereafter Landry and his wife who did not do anything other than just being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, the landowner's brother goes into the home where there is a light-skinned African-American female and proceeds to rape her. Now, if you ever were to look at that scene, the rape scene in that film mirrors the rape scene in Birth of a Nation. We have a white man raping a black woman. Right. What the show is saying here, I'm going to show you who really rapes who. Not the way it was erroneously depicted in Birth of a Nation that African Americans are lustful and oversex and raping. No. This is how <laughs> this is how reality really is. And then of course the white man is shocked to find as he is grabbing this woman that she has a mark on her chest and which tells him that the woman is his illegitimate daughter. I mean, Michaud hits you like a wrecking ball with a lot of his themes. It's so interesting because I can imagine white audiences never saw this. Yes and no. Some of them did. You know, 1919 was an awful year uh, in African-American history because World War One brought a lot of great positive benefits. There were urban factory jobs for African-Americans and also the chance to serve our country worldwide. Uh, Self-esteem of African-American men was high. And to come back 
and to be barraged by the sense of racism and also by the feeling of being threatened by white men in this country that there weren't enough jobs, then there were race riots. There was a terrible race riot in Chicago. 6,000 policemen had to be called. So you show a film like Within Our Gates at the Peking Theater, where a few weeks earlier there was a race riot, a lot of people are going to feel, oh my God, okay, we have this movie here. Is this going to happen again? Also with a lot of Michelle's films, uh, some things that a lot of people are not aware of is that (laughs) African-Americans complexion-wise are not monolithic. There are several shades of African-Americans. American complexion. So there may be a female featured in these films who is very, very close to being um, mistaken as Caucasian or what they used to call back in the day passing. And audiences, not just white, blacks too, they would be upset when they would see a dark-skinned man kissing this woman who is black and they would say, look at him, he's kissing a white woman. <laughs> the truth is, she's just as black as you and me. So so what was Michaud doing with that? Was he trying to show the complexity and the arbitrariness of judging us by our skin color? Absolutely. I really do believe that he was showing the many different sides of the conundrum, the enigma of racism and colorism wrapped inside of its own enigma. And I think he wanted us to step outside of it and to take a look at ourselves. And, you know, oftentimes within the culture, you know, it, and it's often viewed as, as as such outside that it's always a black-white thing. There's always tension between black and white. Well, there's also tension between uh, 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 cream and, and, and mahogany. Was there any evidence that white filmmakers would see these films themselves and borrow any ideas or techniques or actors from, you know, get inspiration from them in any way? Sarah, a whole industry came and sucked in like a vacuum everything that you have just mentioned. I'm going to give you a year. This year is 1929. Two years earlier, we had a huge advancement in motion pictures. We had sound, Al Josen, the jazz singer, okay? So in 1929, Hollywood comes out with two films, Hearts and Dixie. And then on August 20th, 1929, was a film called Hallelujah. These were the first two all-black cast films from Hollywood, from Fox and MGM, okay? So they took the actors from the race movies, uh, Nina Mae McKinney, Step and Fetch It, and, and a host of many others. So now we have a new film genre. We have the Hollywood all-black cast film, and we have the race movie genre, the independent race movie genre. There's a number of things that the Hollywood all-black cast film genre did to race movies, okay? Number one, it went away from the images of upper-middle-class African-American life and decorum and focus primarily on the entertainment, the singing and the dancing, okay? They tried to recreate those big, glossy 
song and dance numbers that Hollywood was known for. Uh, the other thing was the race movies found themselves going backward instead of moving forward. It wasn't about the message anymore. It was going simply into entertaining. And then the third thing is when you go into the 1940s, the, blur, the, the, the difference between what was a race movie and what was an all-black Hollywood picture, it began to blur, okay? After a while, these films would come out and a lot of people would just feel that they were just the same. So this kind of contributed to and it was signaling the beginning of the end of the race movie genre. Why did Hollywood in 1929 want to make all-black cast films? Very easy. Money. They saw that there was a lot of money to be made in all-black cast films. And who would watch those all-black cast films? African-Americans. And then um, what was also going on was, see, in the 20s, there were a lot of independent black theaters on what was called the Chitlin Circuit, okay? And the Chitlin Circuit is is a name that black vaudevillians gave to a string of theaters all around the Jim Crow South where you could be perform with no trouble, okay? It was truly called the Theater of Black America Circuit, T-O-B-A, okay? Today we call it the Urban Circuit. But in the 40s, now, because of the power of Hollywood, Hollywood is now owning so many theaters all over the country. Lowe's, United Artists, and, and, and so forth. So, 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 so these corporations and these studios are controlling what pictures are being shown all over the nation. If they can bring a huge crowd of African-Americans to these theaters that they were controlling, then they were going to benefit from that financial gain. And so this, Sarah, is where we see the beginning of starlets like Lena Horne. This was also where a star like Stepin Fetchit is going to enjoy dual success, not only in the independent race movie market, but also in the Hollywood market as well. And there were a lot of them that were doing this. Hattie McDaniel was one, too. Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr.'s first film was a race movie. Sammy Davis uh, Jr. Uh, was seven years old. He performed in a short called Rufus Davis for President, in which he was tap dancing and singing. It's a delightful film. Butterfly McQueen, who was prissy and Gone with the Wind, played in a couple of films. And of course, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson's very first acting job was a race movie directed by Oscar Michaud. And it was a film entitled Body and Soul, in which he played a drunken, lecherous uh, minister. So if race movies reached their peak during the Jim Crow era, because African-Americans in one sense were shut out of Hollywood and also, there was just so much racism in mainstream movies. When did the making of race movies pretty much come to a close? Was it the end of segregation? It, it started at the end of World War II. After experiencing racism firsthand the way that we did in Europe, when we came back, we were kind of like, okay, 
maybe this isn't working. Uh, maybe we really need to rethink how we're doing things in this country. That was sort of the air. And of course, what that means is it's going to take a while to see anything. Well, what happens nine years later? Brown versus Board of Education, okay? Uh, Ten years after World War II was the Montgomery bus boycott. So there was something in the air that something was going to have to change. So in 1948, Hollywood puts out three motion pictures, Intruder in the Dust, Pinky, and Lost Boundaries, in which there were serious scenarios dealing with African Americans in these films. So in short, these films introduced what was called the new Negro. Okay, so Hollywood, what Hollywood was doing was, it was indirectly admitting that they created the old Negro, which the race movies protested against. So they cleaned up their act and they presented this new Negro. And then as that was going on, the black audience was moving more toward these new Negro motion pictures. And also there was a feeling in the culture that there was a low quality with production. The sound isn't too good and the film is too grainy and I want I want the better experience and 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 such. And then in the 50s, we begin to integrate and then with integration comes freedom. And then let me experience something that I was more curious about. Let me go to a theater that I've never been to before. Let me experience this, that and the other. The need for such affirmation begins to trail off. Oscar Micheaux passes in 1951. The last known race movie was a film produced in 1954 called Carib Gold. And then we go through a period of roughly 14, 15 years in which some film historians called the no-Negro period until the late 60s when uh, Gordon Parks, Melvin Van Peebles, and Ozzie Davis create a new genre, which would eventually become known as exploitation. Going back to that earlier time, the so-called race movies, how many of those were made? 500, and right now, only 100 survive. Why? Deterioration. In the 80s, a lot of these were found in boxes in warehouses. They're all public domain, so we're putting them out as educational use right now. And boy, is it for our benefit. You know, you could say culture is important because it expresses the life of a people. And these films express the life of these Americans. Americans who used their skills in the arts and the humanities. This was a cultural, artistic way to stand tall. Roy Boyd, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Elroy Boyd is a professor of speech and theater at Virginia State University and an adjunct professor of mass communications at Virginia Commonwealth University. Major support for With Good Reason 
is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com, with good reason, is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. We had studio help from Bill Foy of Virginia Tech. For the podcast or for a transcript of today's show, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.